This episode has been brought to you by the Manhattan Toy Company. Do you lament the fact that your kids have way too many toys strewn all over the house only to have lost interest in many of them because they haven't forged any real attachment? Velveteen rabbit syndrome is real, and I think it's up to us as parents and caretakers to teach our children how fun it can be to use toys as a tool to spark their imagination and curiosity. No overstimulating lights, sounds, or gadgets needed. I have partnered with Manhattan Toy Company, which was founded in 1978 and has stood the test of time because there's something so special and scientifically proven about toys that are thoughtfully crafted to promote the right challenge at the right time, from teething to gross and fine motor skills to social emotional learning and pretend play. My youngest son loved his wooden baby beads, which worked on his motor skill development like grasping, shaking, and reaching when he was first learning to crawl. My toddler daughter adores the Playdate Friends collection. I smile when I see how nurturing of a person she is when she's pretending to feed her doll in a booster chair or take her for a walk in a stroller. And it helps that it's machine washable too. My other son and daughter's twin enjoys the Making Faces magnet set where he can manipulate the faces to have glasses or feel glad, sad, or mad to mirror how he's feeling. Save 20% on your next purchase using the search term MomSense when you visit the website ManhattanToy.com to redeem your unique 20% off code. You and your kids will fall in love with this brand just as we have. Hi, it's Farnoosh Tarabi, financial expert and host of the So Money podcast. And I had an incredible experience on That's Total Mom Sense. Kanika is an ace interviewer. Hi, it's Kanika. And I'm back with a brand new season of That's Total Mom Sense, where I interview parenting experts, world renowned thought leaders, best selling authors, and trailblazing entrepreneurs on their incredible life stories and Mom Sense experiences. Hi, I'm Gabby Bernstein, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. It's me, Bobby Brown, on Total Mom Sense. Can't wait to share my story. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. Pandemic or not, these episodes will inspire you to make every single day count. Episodes release on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Join my tribe and subscribe wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. What's more relevant to people's lives than money? You know, money yes. is also something that we don't like to talk about. In my family, the opposite. We love talking about money. So I think they also set me up for uh, my career in that way too, is that I, I approached money without any fear or I always just curiosity because we're not raised versus men. We're not raised with this assumption that we're going to like manage money or be good at money or make money. Right. You know, so we need to coach ourselves into knowing that we can do this and that this is definitely our domain within our domain. As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. 
Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. So today's interview is one that's very, very close to my heart and couldn't be more timely. It's about financial independence and how as women, we should understand what that means and it's never too early to start. Today, I'm joined by Farnoosh Tarabi, who is one of America's leading personal finance authorities, hooked on helping you live your richest, happiest life. As contributing editor to Oprah Magazine and Next Advisor, host of a primetime series for CNBC and creator of the Webby-nominated podcast, So Money, Farnoosh has become our favorite go-to money expert and financial friend. The New York Times calls her advice perfectly practical. Farnoosh's award-winning and critically acclaimed podcast, So Money, has surpassed 17 million downloads with listeners in over 200 countries, thanks to its one-of-a-kind interviews and deep conversations about money. On the show, she spotlights leading experts, authors, and influencers from Ariana Huffington to Margaret Cho, Queen Latifah, and Tim Gunn about their financial perspectives, money failures, and habits. She also answers listeners' personal financial questions each week. She is a mom of two settled in New Jersey. Farnoosh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kanika. It's so nice to join you on your podcast. Absolutely. Well, you had so much to do with the scaling of this podcast. I was the little engine that could when I launched it in 2019. And I just, I want to give a testimonial to you. Um, I'm so thankful to have met you and taken your course that you have along with Jacqueline Malone called Pays to Podcast. Um, I was just so enlightened by the strategy and the science that goes into podcasting. It's not just this new media phenomenon that cropped up this year. There's there's so much more to it. And you've been doing this a very, very long time. So you've helped me and have helped me kind of secure the brands that I want to align with and procure the guests that I want to bring on the show. You've taught me kind of the, the methods in order to do that successfully. And I'm just so thankful to have you in my corner. Oh my gosh, thank you. Well, a secret to running a successful program is only involving the program with students who are going to be successful (laughs) that you just know so that later you can take credit for it, but you are going to be successful with or without me. And it's so wonderful to see everything that you've built and so deserved. Thank you. I'm so touched. Thanks. Okay. So podcasting is a phenomenon because you were an early adopter and pioneer, you know, and when we look at the stats from this year alone, you know, in 2020 and and pandemic life, we went from seeing 700K podcasts to over 1.7 million out there. So, you know, what was it like when you first launched and, you know, how have you kind of stood the test of time? Well, but you know, it is interesting to see where the numbers have gone. And when I started producing the show for the first time, you know, before we launched in January of 2015, I took about a four to six month period to get all my ducks in a row. There's a lot of moving parts, as you know, to launching a podcast. And then even back then, I felt I was really late to the game. Better to have started in 2015 in some ways than now, certainly a more crowded platform. But I remember just seeing, at least this is my experience, you know, I just saw a lot of men hosting podcasts and I, in the personal yeah. finance, 
And this is mm-hmm. something that I've been, you know, I've been working in personal finance uh, now. It's been 20 years. And uh, as a self-employed person in this space, it's always my challenge and opportunity to find my next project. No one is coming to me with the next project. Right. I have to identify it. And for years up to the podcast, those projects largely consisted of things like books and television series. I maintained a blog and and all sorts of different multi-platform. I hadn't yet really sunk my teeth into an audio platform. And I saw podcasts really becoming the, the go-to platform for a lot of men in my industry. I tell every woman, like, you got to go where the men are because they know what's up. You know, they're, and they, I went to a work event and um, this is right after I had a baby, uh, not right after, but probably like three months after I had my first son, I was ready to kind of get back into my career. And so I went to this annual conference that's for creators in the personal finance space. And at one of the cocktail events, I noticed like some guys like huddling in a corner and I knew they were all podcasters. So I warmed myself up to them and got all the deets. Wow. I was like, tell me everything. And um, (laughs) after the conference, I got on the phone with a couple of them and they were very generous and they gave me, they told me everything. And they were also learning, you know, as they were going, but I felt like um, me trying to Google my way, Google search my way to do this was not really practical or quick. So I, I just, I was so grateful to get these um, gentlemen on the phone and even at the conference to to spill some of the deets. And they were monetizing and they were building their brands. And I was like, you know what? I was a news producer. I know how to create shows. I know the media. I think I got this from a technical standpoint. And now my challenge is to find a hook for a show about money that can feel really me, but also really... is serving the audience. And so what is that topic or what is that theme within the personal finance space that can really serve well through the medium of audio um, where you can really get into it and you can do it a lot. That's the thing. You know, you got to make sure that you got it. You can stick with it. So whether you're a creator in the podcast space, videos, blogs, the, the key is consistency. Yep. And, you know, it's a bit of a leap of faith. You think you like something and then you start doing it and you're like, oh, this is not actually my cup of tea. Right. But I got lucky there and I definitely um, really fell in love with the format of the show. And But at the same time, always, as uh, as I say, nothing was written in ink. Everything was written in pencil. I was <laughs> giving myself permission to change the rules along the way. I went from seven days a week, crazy, to five and then eventually to three. And then I sometimes changed the the way that I would do the show. So the traditional format of the show is talking to everyday people about their money. But sometimes, depending on what was happening in the news, I really wanted to talk about the stimulus or really wanted to talk about, gosh, you know, equal payday or something like that. And so would bring in an expert to talk about something more topical, which was, you know, anti-thematic for me, but I felt like I'm going to give, I'm going to go there because it's still kind of in my wheelhouse. And, and like, I did a whole series on black wealth matters last summer. I just Mm -hmm. dedicated the entire month of June to talking to black leaders in all different industries about their journey to, you know, navigating through all their money issues. You know, so I, I give myself permission to go where I feel like the audience is and not be like, 
bound by the, uh, the parameters that I created six years ago because that's, yeah. you know, that's, I, I don't think that's how you grow. There's a lot of overthinking that goes on in the creative space. Yeah. And I can appreciate that. I think we're all hardworking and we want to get it right. But the, the the shortcut is really to listen to your audience and do what they tell you. And I get right. the opportunity to hear from my audience a lot. And I, I solicit them, you know, tell me your questions. And every Friday we address their most burning money questions. And you better believe that after a while, I start to, I, I sort of have like a, a, a running um, idea of what my audience cares about or what is, mm. the mo- what is the moment's issue that everybody is struggling with. And that can often inform what comes next on the show. So you know, giving your audience the space to reach out to you and do that easily is not only great for them, they feel more connected to you and more like, you know, paid attention to, but for as the host, uh, what a goldmine of uh, ideas. That's great. I love that. Now let's start with your background and your childhood, which I feel like will definitely resonate with a lot of the immigrant families out there. So let's start from the beginning. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How much earlier do you want to go in? I'm actually writing a lot about my my childhood. I'm trying to write a book about the idiosyncrasies of growing up in a Persian American family. And I was raised very scared, very afraid all of the time, you know, looking over my shoulder, never trusting anybody who wasn't in my immediate circle. Yeah. And and I think that that set me up for actually a lot of success as an adult woman living in a scary world, which is the United States of America. My parents are immigrants. They came here in the late 70s, more or less to escape the the craziness that was happening in Iran with Mm. the, um, you know, there was a bit of civil uproar. There was civil unrest. There was the war with Iraq. And so there was a lot that they just felt was not um, promising Mm -hmm. (laughs) for them. And my dad was here getting his PhD in physics and they got lucky in that um, someone offered my dad, an employer offered my dad a, a temporary visa and that turned into citizenship. And, you know, it just really, uh, he would always say to me as a kid, like, you have no idea how lucky you are. And I'd be like, yeah, whatever, dad. But <laughs> really, it was it was a roll of the dice, you know? And yeah. um, it's sobering to remember that because you're like, the life that I have today, it comes down to one guy who um, saw something in my father and was like, I want to keep your family here. I have the ability to do that. Come work wow. at my company. I will sponsor your visa. Because they had no other, it was either that or go back to Iran. Right. So it was, wow. it's like your life is sometimes decided by these split, these moments, right? Or these mm-hmm. split decisions or these these people that like you can actually have the ability to change someone's life. So uh, growing up Iranian in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, which <laughs> the New York Times calls nobody's first choice. Uh <laughs> You I've know, been there because I, I went to school in Worcester, Boston. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was lovely when I lived there, you know. Yeah. Um, I had a, a lovely childhood, you know, minus the the fear mongering that my parents <laughs> <laughs> installed. But I was the only child for many years. When I was 11, my brother was born. And so I feel like I have this, and this is such good exercise for me to be talking about this with you because I feel yeah. like it's going to give me good like writing juice. Water for your book. Um, yes. So, you know, I grew up very independent and then all of a sudden very much responsible for someone. Like my brother was very much someone I took care of. 
And I think it prepared me for parenting and parenthood and all the babysitting jobs that I had in between. Everybody, (laughs) all the moms were like, you're really good at this. I'm like, yeah, I've been changing diapers since I was 10 and a half. Amazing. Um, And so thanks, Todd. He's he's now uh, turned 30 this year. Uh, Crazy. But always just interested in helping people too. Like kind of going back to the career stuff is, you know, if someone asks like, did you ever imagine be doing what? No, nobody ever, no one ever thinks they're going to be a financial podcaster when they're, you know, seven years old (laughs) in the eighties. But I think I always wanted to be in service and helping people. I think that's why I pursued journalism first, parlayed that into financial journalism, because again, what's more, what's more relevant to people's lives than money? You know, money is, also something that we don't like to talk about in my family, the opposite. We love talking about money. So I think they also set me up for uh, my career in that way too, is that I, I approached money without any fear or I always just curiosity. Right. That's and, so cool. I love yeah. that they, that your parents um, kind of put it out all on the table and oh, yeah. wanted you to like the have good these and the discussions. Bad, though, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When money's tight, like kids can know that. Yeah. When, oh, and I knew that. And I knew that when my mom and dad didn't agree over money, they would fight about it. And that taught me the importance of, as a woman, the importance of having your own financial stash, your own income stability mm. in, in any partnership. It's so important. I see it. It's why I think I'm so passionate still today, because a lot of things haven't changed from the 80s and the 50s, frankly, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the traditional gender roles that couples play in a marriage when it comes to money. And that I think is just dangerous, frankly, you know, when whether you're the man who's not working and not making money and doesn't know, and that that is the reality for a lot of dads and husbands, it's not progress when it's just the woman making all the money and making all the financial decisions and the husband is in the dark. Um, I've seen that. It's, you know, ideal when everybody's informed and everybody feels a degree of independence in the marriage um, financially and otherwise. And so I, you know, our work is still not done in that department. And that's, you know, for me, it keeps me really busy. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to shed light on um, an anecdote that you share on your website. Um, you said that at 22, you were 30K in debt. So what was it that lit a fire under your ass that you were like, okay, <laughs> I have to pay this yeah. off? You're right. It wasn't the six figures that we often read the headlines of over. Mm-hmm. You know, like It's not impossible to graduate from college today with very high five figures in debt or more. And I think um, what got me, what triggered me to take control of that was, well, two things. One, my mom, I remember she called me up one day. This was when I was first sort of on my own. And Ted said to me, you'll never believe what your aunt told me. You know, it's like gossip. And I said, what? <laughs> she goes, well, um, your cousin, her son, uh, is in severe credit card debt and they had to bail him out. And it was like 30 or 80,000. I can't remember the number, but it was a lot. Oh. Mm-hmm. $30,000 or $80,000. I was like, how does some, you know, and I, and, and so, but, and she said to me without knowing where I was in my financial <laughs> right. life, right. she pretty much put the fear of God in me. And she was like, that better never happen to you. We would never be able to bail you out. We're in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, so then, you know, the, my mother put the fear of God in me as she normally did, but it was also knowing that I wanted to have this career where I was helping people with their money. So I had to, 
take care of my business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I couldn't be like telling people to pay down their credit card debt if I wasn't following my own advice. Right. And so I felt like I needed to work on myself first before I could really go out there and be the leader that I wanted to be for people. And um, that was really motivating. And, you know, to be honest, I love to work. I've always had multiple jobs, even in high school and college and to this day. And, and I remember in my early 20s when I had all that debt and I was working full time, I had other jobs. I was babysitting. I was pet sitting. I wrote for the local paper, got, you know, a couple hundred bucks a week on writing, you know, little articles. Then I got a book deal because I was working on all these content pieces. And um, as soon as I got my first advance check, I paid off the remainder of my student loan debt entirely. And so oh I, I had the benefit of that, you know, of that lump sum, which yes. I know not, not a lot of people have. And, and so, yes, it was motivated. It was emotionally motivated, but also I got the money that I needed through the, the work. Right. Also wow. And, you know, you've authored uh, several books. Your first was You're So Money, Live Rich Even When You're Not. Yeah, that came out in 2008, right as the recession was kicking off. It was a it was a weird time to be coming out with a book about money. On the one hand, everybody needed to learn about money, but also nobody had a job. So it was, yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah. nobody wanted like... to buy a book. But it was, for me, an opportunity to really uh, establish what my purpose was in this world of personal finance, which at the time was really to help young people, my peers. I definitely saw a void in the marketplace where a lot of the advice was tailored to retirees or people who are approaching retirement and or maybe people our parents' ages, but not much for the 20-something cohort and very underserved market. So that book really was one of the first to call that out and provide a Bible for the that generation to also meet them where they were at. You know, it wasn't going to be just the same advice we would give our parents with a different title and an edgier, you know, font. It was, <laughs> yeah. you know, we really have to understand that this generation, they have different goals and they have different right. timelines for achieving those goals and they want different things and they maybe don't want to buy a house or they do. So it was yes. really being cognizant of that zeitgeist. And um, right. it, it really just established my brand and my career and everything. It was, I, I credit that book for so much. And actually real simple, now it's been, oh my gosh, more than 10 years. In 2021, Real Simple came out with a list of like the best money books. And my book was number one on their list. And I was like, oh my God, blast from the past. Yes. Because you know? <laughs> there's been now like circle. a million money books written and real, the editors of Real Simple, like I bow to you. That was just <laughs> such a nice, you know, it's a reminder to everybody when you're working on something and you're thinking, why, why am I doing this? You know, especially like a book that's just such a, you know, take so much out of you. I'm a big fan of books. I think if mm-hmm. you've got a book in you, do it. It's such a let you're leaving such a legacy. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, 10 years from now, you can still reference, you can hold it in your hand, real simple, we'll call it out. You know, it's it, there are a right. lot of special moments that await. Yes, absolutely. And I love that you tailored it for that generation because that was the phase of life that you were in. And I mean, I've seen it myself. I have a sister who's seven years younger. And she's one who will very openly say, like, 
don't really need the car. I would rather have a trip. And it's it's more about the experiences for yes. them mm-hmm. than the fixed assets. Um, so yeah, that's that's really cool. Now moving on to your next phase of life, you um, shared how you got married. You became a mom twice, and you wrote "Psych Yourself Rich: Get the Mindset and Discipline You Need to Build Your Financial Life." It's for everybody, but always, you know, I think women are are, the, are more likely to flock to my stuff. But that book was really about getting to the emotions that we have about money, uh, less about like how to get out of debt, but really um, how to get the mindset to want to get out of debt and to continue the journey because it's, you know, there's going to be a lot of um, hurdles. And so how to really have the emotional intelligence and the emotional strength to work your work your way through your financial goals. And it was really born out of, at that point, I'd had a number of experiences helping people, individuals, one-on-one, coaching them through my television work and, and other formats that I recognized that, you know, I would go there with like budgeting worksheets and they just wanted to talk about their moms or, you know, the fact that they were, they hated their boyfriends or that they had low self-esteem. And then I was like, oh, okay. So there's some pre-work here that we have to do. Yes. You know, since then, and at the time the book came out, there had been some incredible breakthroughs in the field of behavioral finance. So we always thought that, money is very rational and humans make rational money choices is the opposite. We're very rational when it comes to things like investing and making quote unquote sound money decisions. And so there was a lot of science to help me write that book as well. So I was, it was, it was a combination of like anecdote storytelling, but also pulling from um, the the research. Yes. Yes. And what are some of your, you know, tips, tangible takeaways that you could provide to like women specifically on achieving that financial independence? My gosh. I mean, I always say that the numbers never lie. And, you know, there's so much data out there that that highlights how powerful women can be when they are given a financial chance. Don't ever underestimate yourself. And, and I'll point to a few of those st- statistics. One is, for example, that you know, women entrepreneurs, although we get we get such a little amount of the venture capital that's out there, we get like 0.0006% of the pie. And for every venture capital dollar that women get, they are able to 2x that. They're better for the money. They're like men versus better men. Better ROI. So, yeah, for, so the, better, yeah. the ROI is 2x wow. um, versus what men can produce. Hmm. And then you look at philanthropy when women... I always say when, when women make more, the world becomes a better place. It's because when women, when you look at um, giving statistics, yeah. regardless, yeah. like, okay, women make less than men, but across all income levels, as a percentage of their income, women give more than men. And then women are better investors. If you, That's scores of studies that have found this from Fidelity to other places that long-term portfolios led by women, directed by women, outperform male portfolios. So amazing. it's like, you know, I can sit here and tell you that the world can be a better place if you just like, you know, work harder and save more. And it's true. It's not just hyperbole. Like you will, you have more potential than you, than you might think. So I see a lot of underestimating happening and, and, and I don't fault women for that because society often will try to convince you that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, prioritize yourself. 
you know, I, I think that's really important. Like invest in yourself. And I also want to send out the message that you have to know your why behind your financial goal setting. So, I mean, some people can just get out of debt because they want to get out of debt. There's not really a lot of, uh, they don't need a lot of meaning behind that, you know, but I think for me, I need to know what is the, what is the payoff? You know, why am I doing this? Cause it's going to keep me motivated. We know that it's really hard for us to stay on course when we're trying to get out of debt or save or invest or any of the things. So knowing very deeply why you want to do the thing that you want to do with money is important to establish in the beginning. And everyone has a different why. And I'm not going to judge you if you're like, if my why is, well, I just want to be able to buy more things. Good. <laughs> then that, let that be your why. Right. Your why is I want to, you know, buy a house or I want to quit my job and, or I want to, you know, have a big wedding. Good for you. But, you know, I think it's important to anchor it to something that's important to you. And it, that's a behavioral strategy that works for a lot of people. And I think for women too, because we're not raised versus men, we're not raised with this assumption that we're going to like manage money or be good at money or make money, right. you know? So we need to coach ourselves into knowing that we can do this and that yes. this is definitely our domain within our domain. Right. Right. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on, on the gender pay gap? And when do you think we're going to be able to remediate it? Oh, I don't know. I think, so. I, I mean, there's a lot of optimistic people out there who say like in 40 years, in 20 years, it's not going to happen this year. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that like any movement that begins within a certain group. So if you think about like gay rights, right? For years, for decades, for generations, we've been, we had been trying to convince people that like gay rights is civil rights and it's human rights. But it wasn't really until the branding change and the messaging change to like, this is family rights. And this is that everybody was like, oh, oh, so this does matter to me, yeah. even though I'm not gay. <laughs> right. And we saw a seismic change in, and a rapid change in the adoption and, cha- and support behind LGBTQ rights. We have a long way to go still in that department, but I think, you know, a lot of people have commented on sort of the rapid adoption all of a sudden. Like it wasn't just one pe- one day people just woke up and realized this was important. I think that they started to shift the messaging a little bit to broaden the messaging and remind right. people that this is not beneficial to just exclusively gay people. Like to yes. give gay people rights is not exclusively beneficial to gay people. It's society benefits. Everybody's yes. happier. Children can grow up with two loving parents who happen to be two men, but you know what? That's like, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. And mm-hmm. same with women's issues. I feel like we've been exclusively asking women, what do you want? We've been exclusively seeing women show up at the parades. We've exclusively been seeing women, you know, behind the marketing, where are the men, where are the men? And I think that that is where I'd like to see the branding shift and the messaging shift to say right. that this is not a women's issue. This is a global crisis. And if we don't all get on board, we all lose out because I just gave you all those statistics. You know, yep. it's not just a win for women when the world becomes a better place for everybody. Yes. Yes. So true. I want to play a little devil's advocate here um, because I'm thinking of, you know, the corporations who aren't really like are kind of feeding into what this gap is. So when they see a woman, they know that she, if she's in her thirties, mid thirties or or so, she's probably going to go on maternity leave. Who's picking up the slack 
for her during that year. Let's say she's in the C-suite, you know, kind of position. So then it becomes the team's responsibility to pick up that slack. So that's that's something that I feel like they're thinking inherently. And that's why women get kind of short. That's yeah. bad business, Kanika. That's yes. a bad business strategy to think like so short term. There's a there's an expectation that you're going to be profitable every quarter. We right. measure businesses' success in short increments. We don't look at like the 10-year growth. We look at the, the three months previous. And I yeah. think that, you know, when you are a publicly traded company and you answer to shareholders, yeah, that I can see where you get nervous about losing talent and having to you know, pay for that. But I think that it's a very short-sighted way to approach your leadership and your company. And no, I mean, there are, there are now data points that show the, the impactful role that women play at companies that the companies that nurture their female talent, that they help them matriculate, that they give them enough time off and not just the women, but the men too. The men like, need it too. I know. Too. That, yeah, exactly. You they know? Should have so the same it's just, it should be baked be in. It's child. a cost of business, you yes, know, just like, yes. you know, I see the UPS trucks double parked where they're not supposed to. They don't care about getting a ticket. It's they've already baked that in. <laughs> yes. You know, they'll get the ticket. Yeah. It's about the efficiency. Their so bosses like, already baked it, it in. So yeah. like bake it in, you know, like yes, this yes, is yes, important, yes. you know, yes. like a UPS truck has to park to get right. the job done. Right. And, you know, if you want to hire top female talent with who want to have children, like, you know, what do you, like, you have to make room for that. Yes. Yes. Your latest book is When She Makes More. And I love it. I think um, there's really great nuggets in there, whether you make more or not. And I wanted to to highlight a page 107 um, where you say to cater to the male brain and, and you talk about the big three. If there's one reality that every breadwinning woman has to live with daily, it's the triumvirate forces of sex, money, and power. How do we tackle this big three? Not all of that, not all of those plates are going to be, you know, twirling around at the same time. I think that sometimes you're going to feel more sexy than powerful and more rich than powerful and more powerful than sexy. I mean, you know, but we want, we, you know, it's, we're ambitious. We want all of those things. Right. I think in, a, in the context of marriage, it's really important to um, communicate uh, with your partner on all of those fronts. And those are taboo topics, you know, money, sex, power. It's like, really, do we really want to have this conversation after like putting the kids to bed and <laughs> just want to like watch Netflix? Right. But um, I think that you got to make time for it. And, and it doesn't have to be this like next Thursday at eight o'clock, we're going to have this conversation. But my husband and I talk to each other all the time on text during the day and we send each other articles. I think that's a great icebreaker is yeah. like, you know, we send each other like all sorts of things that we're reading. Um, because one, it's a way for us to stay involved in each other's lives, you know? So like a dinner, I don't have to ask him how his day was. I can be like, so that article you sent me, it was really weird, you know? Right, and right. You have a talking point. Totally. Have a talking point. We have something to jump off of. And so it, you know, I guess all this to say that, um, it's enough to just have it in the back of your mind and to be conscious of it. And once in a while, you know, if you feel like some things are falling off the cliff, uh, that you address it. Yeah, no, so, so true. You know, I, I actually was contemplating buying the piggy banks that are share 
spend, um, save, spend, donate, save, donate. Yes, money yes. savvy pig. It's my really good friend, Susan Beecham's company. She started oh, nice. over 20 years ago. Yeah, that's my very first published story in Money Magazine when I was like 20 years old was profiling her. She put me on the map. Her, she was teaching, she basically she runs a financial literacy company for kids and that's it's so great. great. And she's taught me so much. I mean, her kids are in their 20s now. And so she's been such a mentor to me and her kids are doing really great. And, you know, her biggest advice that now I give to everybody is to make it really um, engaging, you know, so it's not about like talking to them about compound interest, although that is serves a purpose. Mm -hmm. It's really about letting them into your world. So I, even my mom used to do this, you know, when we'd go to the department store and she'd pay off her store credit card. I was like, what's going on? And she would tell me, or we go to get layoff, layaway at TJ Maxx. What's this? Like, how does this work? And she would tell me. And so, wow. you know, bringing a checklist to the grocery store, my daughter and I put a checklist together the other day and she went and like felt so proud to like pick things out. And, you know, of course, she doesn't know what things cost and we're not doing a calculation. She's four, mm-hmm. right. but she's realizing that, you know, there's a conscious effort to, like, you're not just spending aimlessly. You're going with a point with, with list and some things you don't get because we have quote unquote enough of that or, you know, ah, like an inventory. Not, yeah. Finish what we have before we buy more. So, you know, little things like that, of course they have piggy banks, but um, I think once they get older, the big thing I want to really in, in, insist upon is getting jobs. Mm. I think it's, you know, whether it's newspaper route or babysitting or a lemonade, like they all want to do lemonade a lemonade stand. Yeah, I know. That's the first you know, just entrepreneurial like, venture for yeah, a Yeah, that is great. Like turning an idea into a business and then they just, that sense of earning is like, you, you know, so special. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then there's so much you can teach. It's like, you know, the cost of goods sold. And it's like, we've got lemons and sugar. And so whatever your profit is, you don't make, you know, you have right. to like account for that. Yeah. that the, exactly. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. I mean, some kids, my son is six and a half. Some parents could can also start teaching investing if they really want to. Like I told my son the other day, I'm like, you know, you don't have to just eat at Shake Shack. You can buy a, a piece of the company. And he was wow. like, he kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? So Soon, too too soon for him, I think. But um, it is something that tweens, I think, can really get. Yes. Yes. Very cool. I definitely want you to humor us with your Persian mom persona. Oh, my God. Which you have done on Insta. It's, like, brilliant. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. There's, like, a trick to the Persian mom accent. First, you curl your lips, and then you turn every W into a V. My mom... Like I said, she raised me to always be frightful. And to her, like the world was filled with like goblins and rapists. And anytime I ever wanted to do something that was a little risque, she immediately went to the R word, which was like, you're going to get raped. You're going to like get kidnapped. You're going to get abducted. And so every little thing like, hey, mom, can I like manage my unibrow situation so that I don't lose all my friends in sixth (laughs) grade? And she'd be like, you want to get raped? I'd say, mom, can I go ice skating with my friends? Because we live in Massachusetts and that's like sort of something that you might want to do in your adolescence once or twice. And she's like, ice skating, just kill yourself. Just kill yourself. Like, just just do the deed. Arnush, you be careful. They work in teams. 
They work in teams. That's what she told me. Like every time I'll tell her, like I told her a really cute story about my son who at the time was like five and he was sitting on a park bench and I was looking at him from like three yards away and this other little boy came over to him. They were, they had been playing. The other little boy was a little bit older and I guess they got into a little bit of a disagreement and the older boy came over and like put his arm around my son. And I thought, I thought it was such a cute moment. I was like, oh my God, they're dealing with their differences. I don't even have to get involved. This is super cute. And the older Mm. kid was being such a nice role model. And I'm telling my mom this on the phone and she was like, be careful. They work in teams. Okay. So (gasps) translation, my mother was like, this boy was a pawn to take my son to kidnap. Yeah. Like a child pornography ring or something. (laughs) Oh my goodness. She's not wrong, you know. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah, you you definitely have to have one eye at the back of your head for sure. That's... Yeah, and then like one time I told her, remember Bolt Bus? It was like a dog. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's how we get back and forth. Yeah, and I was Boston. like, Mom, check it out. My husband and I, we dated semi-long distance. He was in Philly and I was in New York. And so we would see each other every weekend. So we were always like trying to game Amtrak or like Greyhound to get the best lowest price for the that weekend's yeah. transportation. And we found Bolt Bus. It was like dollar. And she was like, one dollar? That's murder bus. <laughs> and my husband laughs to this day. He's like, what did she mean by murderer bus? Like literally everybody on that bus is carrying like a <laughs> The driver's going to go rogue and kill everybody. <laughs> like everyone, everyone has like a different weapon, you know? Like, And where are they going? Where'd they come from? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'd murder. have to I'm like, also because murderers only have a dollar to spare for their bus ride. You know? And they just really like going back and forth in New York and Philly. (laughs) That's murder, boss. (laughs) Wow. What a riot. Oh my goodness. Um, I want to end with two last questions. One is your mom sense moment. Um, So is there a moment where you just like kind of blindly trusted that built-in sixth sense we have, our mom sense when it came to your kids? My son recently, he, uh, this was last summer, he bumped his toe on a piece of furniture and then a few days later got infected. Uh And I just like went super mom because I knew that infections, you know, you got to work, you got to act fast. And it's like the pandemic, like all the things. So I took him to the emergency room and thank God I did because I had gone through it years ago and didn't address it. And then I was like on crutches and, you know, I almost had to go to the hospital and all that because the infection can get really bad. Mm -hmm. And so I just got really scared for him and I immediately took him to the hospital and um, got him the, the treatment he needed. And we had to stay overnight and then they wanted me to stay an extra night. And that's when I called BS because I was yeah. like, you're just trying to make money off me. Right, right. Really. And I was like, give me a good reason. Can I just take him home? He's had six rounds of this IV. Like, I don't yeah. think he needs one more because one more night in the hospital would have been like $3,000. Yes, yes. Oh my and goodness. Like, I'm so glad you called that out. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? You don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. Ooh. You know, it would be nice if we got what we deserve, but that's just right. not the world that it we live in. It doesn't work out that way. And until we live in paradise, I have to negotiate for myself. And yep. I think it's good to practice that and know that that's your responsibility. It's now time for Mom Hall when we share products we love. Is there a product or an app or anything like that, that you are loving right now, that's been a game changer for you? 
Game changer. Well, I really like personal capital. I don't have a relationship with them. I just really like it, mainly just for the net worth, you know, calculation that they do. You can hook up all your accounts and you can even like get your home Zillow estimated on there so you can get a sense of what your equity is to add to your home, to your net worth and all of that. And I think that especially since the last year has been very volatile financially, first half of last year was very, very volatile, that I always wanted reassurance that, you know, maybe like what one checking account says isn't really the totality of your financial life. So don't obsess over like the one checking account that you have, because I have a few checking accounts. And, you know, so it's been really good for me to just, I always say it's important to uh, check in with your money don't check your investments every day, but check your money situation, you know, check your credit cards, your bank balances, and you can do it all on, on personal capital without having to log into a a zillion sites. And I'm remodeling our home a little bit, sprucing up some of the areas and replacing furniture and selling stuff on Facebook marketplace, which has been a really great (laughs) way to do it, but then also buying more furniture to replace the other stuff. And, um, I've really been liking First Dibs, which uh, I haven't actually bought anything on there, but it's great for inspiration. It's really expensive stuff. It's old, antique or like collectible things mm. from like art to shoes to tables to lamps. And sometimes you can find really great deals. But yeah. I mean, this is also the site that sells like six-figure. Right, like Murano glass. Purses. Yeah, yeah like it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. But I've actually discovered artists on there. And then contacted them directly because I know first takes a cut. Yeah. And that way, you know, they give me a little bit less of a price, but then they get to keep most of the money. Exactly. All of the money. Because yes. you know, so yeah, yeah. There's no third party. That's that's nice. Don't tell first day. <laughs> and, yeah. Nice yeah. little hack there. Um awesome. Tell us where we can find you. Yeah. So you can find me at so many podcast.com and I love Instagram, you know, I have all the social media handles, but I think Instagram is where I like to hang out the most. And I'm at Farnoosh Tarabi there. Amazing. Farnoosh, you you are a light. Oh my gosh. This conversation was so many. Um, I, I love that we got into all the things. And again, I'm so thankful to have you as a friend and mentor and all the things. Um, So thank you for your time. My honor. Thanks. When we think of April, we think of April showers and tax season. I wanted to make sure that this episode with Farnoosh Sharabi aired during this time when we're all doing our accounting and really evaluating our finances in earnest. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, Farnoosh is a powerhouse as a financial journalist and podcaster, and I just want to plug her podcast accelerator course where you can build, leverage, and grow your podcast. The website is accelerator.somoneypodcast.com. I took her course, uh, which she taught alongside Jacqueline Malone, and that was called Pays to Podcast. And even though I am a journalist as well, I learned so much and I can't thank Farnoosh and Jacqueline enough for what they taught me. To learn more about Farnoosh, you can log on to her website, podcast.farnoosh, F-A-R-N-O-O-S-H dot TV. Farnoosh, thank you again for being a wonderful friend and advisor to me. I can't thank you enough. 
Tune in to other podcast episodes and browse my YouTube videos where I'm repurposing my Zoom interviews. And you can just find them by searching Kanika Chadda Gupta on YouTube. I also have the audio embedded on my website, and that's that's totalmomsense.com. And of course, I am available on all the usual suspects, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Good Pods, and Google Podcasts, which I found to be a great aggregator. How did this episode help you? Do you feel reinvigorated to assess your personal finances? Whatever it may be, I'd love to hear your feedback. Email me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. Remember, always trust your mom's sense. Stay strong, super mamas. See you next time. That's total mom sense.